Matthew chapter 12 and verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and His disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to Him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God, and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the bread and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And Jesus, you are the one we approach as Lord of the the Sabbath tonight. Lord of Shabbat. Lord of our rest. Lord of our peace. Lord of all comfort, Father. Lord of all strength that comes through rest. Lord of Father, salvation that comes through quietness and trust and repentance. You are Lord of all these things. Lord of our lives. And we again submit ourselves to you tonight. We submit ourselves to your authority now by your word. We ask that your spirit, Lord Jesus, would be our guide and our teacher. And that you would speak things into our hearts, into our minds, Father, tonight as we study. That we would see and understand clearly the words, not only Jesus, that you spoke back then, but the word that you're speaking to us tonight. And we thank you so much. We praise you that we have your word. And that we can open up like this. And... Father, have the freedom to study Your Word. And I pray, Father, this freedom will not be violated. I pray in this country that we have enjoyed so much freedom in for so long that we will continue to always have the freedom to open the Word just as we're doing tonight. Lord, bless this body tonight. Bless our time together as we seek to know You better in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we left off with Jesus offering something only God could offer. Jesus said, I can give you something that only God could give. He said back in verse 28 of Matthew 11, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In Matthew chapter 12, the whole theme of Israel's rest, as Jesus just proclaimed it, as Jesus said, come to me and I will give you rest. Your rest is found in me. Well, now we get the practical application of that. For we see in Matthew chapter 12, the theme of Israel's rest is now brought into play, even dramatically, as Jesus connects it to his own divinity. As he connects the fact that not only does he bring rest, but he as God is the only one that can bring rest. And it becomes very clear as we will read on and see the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And only God is Lord of the Sabbath. Only God can claim that rightful position. The chapter starts off and it was the Sabbath day. Jesus and the boys are roaming the countryside. No doubt they're talking, they're chatting, He's teaching. They're enjoying the time together. And as they walk through the countryside, they're passing through the grain. And as Jewish travelers often did, they're running their hands over the grain and grabbing hold a little bit. 
and rubbing it between their fingers and, and therefore pulling out some of the seeds that they can chew on for a snack. It, it really was the original AMPM. You know, as you're traveling, anywhere you went, there was going to be one there. You could stop off and get a snack. So this is all they were doing. The Bible gives reason for that. Deuteronomy 23.25 In the old law it said, When you enter your neighbor's standing grain, then you may pluck the heads with your hand. Doesn't mean that you can go reap from your neighbor's field, but if you're hungry and you happen to be walking through, every Israelite had the right to wander into his neighbor's grain field, and, and if they're hungry in the middle of the day, just grab some heads of grain and eat. It was a way that God provided for His people and reminded His people that the very standing grain really wasn't theirs. It belonged to the Father, and He wanted His people to be fed. But we might ask, are there any legal restrictions against picking grain on the Sabbath? Because obviously, as the story begins, the Pharisees see what happens, and in verse 2 it says, they do what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. They can't do this. Somebody was watching. Somebody called in a complaint. Somebody said... Hey, these guys are eating, and it's Sabbath day, and they are doing what you cannot do. Well, so let's go back and see. Are there any legal restrictions in the Old Testament law that says you can't do this? Exodus chapter 20, in verse 8, the fourth commandment. The Lord said through Moses, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and in it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. That is all the law said about what you could do on the Sabbath. Man and religion piled on top of the law far more than what the law... That's what religion does. Religion always adds more to what you have to do. It always increases the burden. It always makes it heavier. Relationship, as Jesus just told us, lightens the load. The burden is easy. The yoke is easy. It's light. It's not heavier. But religion always adds to it. And so the Talmud says, In the case of a woman who rolls wheat to remove the husks, it is considered sifting. If she rubs the heads of wheat, it is considered as threshing. If she cleans off the side adherencies, it is sifting out fruit. If she bruises the ears of wheat, it is grinding. If she throws them up in her hand, it is winnowing. And so according to Talmud, the disciples were in direct violation of of, of Sabbath law. Because they were doing all these things, sifting, threshing, grinding and winnowing, as they wandered through that field. It was work. It's a violation of Sabbath. According to the Talmud... But you see, the Lord didn't write the Talmud. Any more than the Lord Lord wrote our commentaries, He wrote His Word. The rest of it is just man trying to figure out what it means. And Talmud put this extra burden on top of the law. The Lord already knew you can't keep the law anyway. The law is too tough. It's perfect. But man comes along and goes, not only is the law perfect, but we can make it better. We'll add things to it. We'll make it heavier. I wonder if Jesus ever just rolled his eyes. I can just see the Pharisees coming up to Jesus and making this claim and him just going, you have got to be kidding me. Are you serious? Working on the Sabbath? So what does Jesus do? How does he respond? This is very instructive to us. The first thing he does is direct them to David their king. Or not their king at the time. David had been dead for a while. But but he directs them straight back to the king that was lauded and loved in Israel. In verse 3, 
He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God, they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. Jesus refers them back to 1 Samuel chapter 21, where David was escaping from Saul, and he came to this place called Nob. And as he came to Nob, the priest there, Ahimelech, meets him. That's probably where the tabernacle was, for that's what David did. He went into the tabernacle, and he said to the priest, Look, we're starving, and we need help. We're on a special errand from the king. He lied. But he was hungry, and so were his companions. And so the priest, the only food he had there was the showbread. The showbread were those 12 loaves of holy bread. It was called the kadosh bread. Holy bread that was set apart every first day of the week, every, every Sabbath day, that is. They put the showbread fresh and new on top of the tables, on the table of showbread, in the holy place in the tabernacle. And that's all the food that the priest had there. And so the priest gave it to David and he ate it. And Jesus said, what do you think about that? Was David violating Sabbath? He ate the bread that was only for the priests. Leviticus 24 verse 8 said, Every Sabbath day the priest shall set the showbread in order before the Lord continually. It is an everlasting covenant for the sons of Israel. It shall be for Aaron and his sons and they shall eat it in the holy place. Aaron and his sons, the Levites. David was of the tribe of Judah. David was a king, not a priest. He had no right to do what he did. And yet Jesus says, it was okay with me. That was all right. Next thing Jesus does is defines a priestly exemption from the Sabbath. He says, going on in verse 5, Have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? Now Jesus is referring to Numbers 28, verses 9 to 10 that the priests had to continue working, even on Sabbath day. For if the priests stopped working, forgiveness wasn't given. (laughs) They had to work every day offering sacrifices to maintain the ongoing forgiveness of God. And so even on Sabbath day, when everybody else had to rest, by law, the priests violated the law, working in the temple on the Sabbath. And Jesus declares both David and the Levites, though they violate the law, they are innocent. How can that be? How is it that they can be innocent? Is Jesus just contradicting His own law? Listen, this is incredibly important. All traditions, all rules, all regulations set forth by God must be read and understood in the context of compassion. All of God's laws have to be seen in the larger context of the compassion of God. Back in Matthew 9.13, Jesus had said, Go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. And apparently they still hadn't learned the lesson, so Jesus repeats it again in verse 7. He says, If you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. You guys aren't getting it, Jesus says. Here is the context of compassion. The sacrifices did not show the righteousness of the people. The sacrifices showed the righteousness of God. But the the Jewish people had forgotten this, especially the leaders. In keeping the sacrifices and in keeping the law and doing these things, it was about their righteousness. But it wasn't supposed to be. Not a single sacrifice offered to God was so that the person could look more righteous. It was so that they could look at what they were doing as they cut the neck of a lamb and saw the blood rushing out and realized this sacrifice was covering their sin. And God was in His forbearance passing over them. That was why 
They gave the sacrifices. Romans 3.23, a powerful verse. Paul said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You've probably heard that. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, that is a total cleansing, in His blood through faith. Now listen. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. What does that mean? It means that the sacrifices were God's way of appeasing Israel's sin, holding off judgment for Israel's sin until the real sacrifice of Jesus could happen and ultimately pay for all that sin. Blood of an animal couldn't save anybody. It was to hold off. It was so the Lord in His mercy could say, I'm not going to condemn you eternally right now. I'm going to wait until Jesus dies. And those of you who had faith in me then, even though Jesus dies later, you will be saved by His blood. All the sacrifices did was point in that direction. In the same way, the cross is not a Christian logo of self-righteousness. Please never wear it as such. Don't hang a cross around your neck. Don't put one on a t-shirt. Don't use it as a logo to show people how good you are. Because you have completely missed the point. The cross... Honestly, it reveals how bad I am. Because the cross shows the end result of my sin, which Jesus paid for. The cross shows how good He is, how merciful He is, how righteous and awesome Jesus is. And by the way, as the cross directs me to the context of compassion, as it directs me to the compassion of Christ, it makes me more compassionate. Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, As those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion. You can't do it without the cross. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. I Honestly, I can't forgive outside of the cross. It is the example of Jesus, it's the crucifixion of Jesus, it's the mercy and love of Jesus that allows me to turn around and show the same compassion to other people. So Jesus directs them to David, and he defines a priestly exemption to the Sabbath law, but then he says something that had to leave them speechless. Verse 8, the Son of Man is Lord of Shabbat. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. They had to have been just drawn back because in that statement, Jesus declared His divinity. Now maybe to you and me, we'd say, oh, He just said He's Lord of the day of rest. Okay, so He's claiming that day is His. It's so much more than that. To the Jewish mind, Shabbat, the Sabbath, was God's witness to His creative power. It was the day that reminded everybody that God created. Exodus chapter 20 verse 11 says, In six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So that people would keep the Sabbath day. And every Sabbath as they rested, they would remember God is Creator. Some of our junior highs and high school could use a Sabbath to remember that God is Creator and not the happenstance of evolution. Sabbath was one other thing to the Jewish people, gang. Not only was it a witness to God's creative power, it was also God's witness to His redemptive power. 
Deuteronomy 5.15, the Lord says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. You are to observe the Sabbath because it reminds you who created. And you are to observe the Sabbath because it reminds you who redeemed. And Jesus comes along and says, Oh, and by the way, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am Creator. I am Redeemer. This is what He was saying. And the people would have heard that, the Pharisees. Once a week, on that day of rest, the Lord remanded the people to consider those two things. God of creation, God of redemption. This is powerful, gang, because Jesus had just said, Come to Me and I will rest you. Come to Me and I will give you rest. He didn't say that because He was just a laid-back dude. Hang out with Me and everything will be cool, man. Jesus said, Come to Me because I am Lord of the Sabbath. I can give you rest in creation. I can give you rest in redemption. Now, I love this about Jesus. He just can't let sleeping dogs lie. It's not enough just to make the statement and then walk away. No, departing from there, verse 9, he went into their synagogue. And a man was there whose hand was withered, and they questioned Jesus, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Matthew tells us they asked him that so they might accuse him. And he said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And again, I can almost see Jesus rolling his eyes. It's lawful to do good things on the Sabbath. It is not a violation of the law to show kindness. It's not a violation of the law to show compassion. These are the things on which the law is based. The whole concept of the law and the reason why God gave it was so that people could love Him more and love each other more. Remember Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. On these two things, the entire law rests. It's all about compassion. And so he turns this question right around back on their own heads, asking what they would do to one of their animals if it was hurt or in need on the Sabbath. And they remain silent. They remain silent. This man is standing there with a withered hand. A hand that's all crinkled up and withered. And they're trying to bait Jesus into an act of healing on the Sabbath so that he could violate the law in front of him. And he says... Isn't it, law, is it not lawful to do good on the Sabbath? And he looks around and waits for an answer and they say nothing. This poor pathetic man with a useless withered hand and they're more filled with legality than they are with empathy for this fellow brother of theirs. We were um, having an interesting conversation I've mentioned recently about, and I don't mean to over-talk about this, but it's just kind of where I've been on Mondays, but being down in the recording studio. And our recording engineer down there is a guy by the name of David, who I'd invite you to, uh, to pray for. He's a really good guy. I really like him a lot. Very, very talented, gifted guy. Um, considers himself an agnostic mystic. I don't know how that works. I don't believe in anything except for mystical things. Okay, okay. And we were talking and having a really interesting conversation. And he was talking about Christianity and saying, you know, the one thing he doesn't like about it is because he sees so much of what he calls the winning team scenario. That it's all about getting you on my team because we have the winning team. 
Or it's all about getting enough people all together over here to say, here's our truth, and we're going to win. And the more people who we can get with us are going to be the winners. And that's the whole point. It's this winning team mentality. And he said, I, I hate that. And you know, we, we talked for a few minutes, and, and, and I told him, Christianity is not about being on the winning team. That is not the point. It is about the love of God expressed in Jesus Christ. Now, it just so happens we are on the winning team, but that's not the point. <laughs> that is not the issue. It's not about looking at the rest of the world and saying, you're all wrong, but we here in the barn, we get it. We're right. It's not that prideful, arrogant statement. It's not getting t-shirts where we walk around going, yeah, the bridge. We're the one church in the area who really has understanding. We're the winning team. David was right. It's all over Christianity. It's church against church. It's Christian against Christian, and it's certainly Christian right against everybody else in the world. There's too much of that. We do not proclaim ourselves as the winner's game. We proclaim Jesus as the Christ. And on Him we stand, and in His love we are called to live. What are you talking about? Well, Mark tells us Jesus looks around with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, because all the Pharisees wanted to do was win. We want to win the legal argument and prove Jesus wrong. And Jesus was saying, it's not about that, it's about love. Why not show this guy some compassion? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus was angry. And in verse 13, He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and it was restored to normal, like the other. A miracle! A supernatural occurrence before their very eyes. How do they respond? The Pharisees went out and conspired against Him as to how they might destroy Him. This is a picture gang of very, very hard hearts. Remember that. Their hearts were incredibly hard. Jesus, aware of this, verse 15, withdrew from there. And many followed Him, and He healed them all. He didn't just stop with the man with the withered hand. He healed every one of them. On the Sabbath, He just kept healing. Why? Because it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he warned them, verse 16, not to tell who he was. Verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. And then Matthew brings us another Hebrew prophecy fulfilled by Jesus. This is from Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. Quote, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. And he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out, until he leads justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Jesus fulfills this prophetic description in a fantastic way, both in his actions but also in his character. Rather than stand there in the synagogue and quarrel and fight about it, what, is, what does the Bible tell us he did? He, re, he withdrew. He just left. He got out of there. He didn't stay to win an argument. Rather than play up the supernatural, even as he's healing person after person after person, he asked that they not make him known. Not just yet. Don't sell me. Don't let everybody know what's going on. That's not the point here. The point is just compassion. I'm just healing you because I love you. I've said this before. Jesus didn't come to this earth to heal people. He came to this earth to save us. So why did he continue healing people? Because he couldn't help it. Because he was so filled with love when he saw hurt and pain, he had to respond. That's who he is. A loving God. But we can learn something here from Jesus' restful, peaceful nature. 
2 Corinthians 2.17, Paul writes, We are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. We don't have to sell anything. We don't have to try and get people on our team. It's not about an invitation to this particular church or any other church. It is about inviting people to Jesus. It's about sharing and showing the love and compassion of Christ to people in our lives. Even if they won't accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, guess what? Still love Him. You still show kindness. You don't go, well, if you're going to be one of those heathen atheists, sorry, I'll have nothing to do with you. It's not what Jesus did. He continued loving. and In fact, the only people he really cut off were the hard-hearted Pharisees. The religious folk. There was this amazing and simple integrity in Jesus. He knew who he was, and so he had nothing to prove. He just went about doing what Jesus did. Unlike some people we see in the church today, crying out on the airwaves and being just plain weird in the name of Jesus. Because they're trying to sell something. They're trying to sell their ministry. Or they're trying to sell the latest book they've written. Or they're trying to sell their popularity. And Jesus just never did that. Followers of Jesus are invited not to do it either. We're invited just to quietly serve. Let our good deeds and our good works be seen before men that they may glorify our Father who is in heaven. Jesus' words, not mine. Jesus blended in. He blended in. And in His nature, He brought about rest to people as we talked about Sunday. Rest in salvation. Rest in sanctification. And as Paul said in Philippians 4-7, the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Someone made a comment the other day that they were surprised that uh, once again Rick was talking about Jesus on a Sunday morning. You know what surprises me? It's surprising to me that I grew up going to church and only heard about Jesus every now and then. If we open the Bible, we should be hearing about Jesus because it's all about Him. Verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus and He healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? That's a messianic title. Title of Messiah, Son of David. He can't. Is it possible? Could this man? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And this will now mark the second time that the Pharisees have plied their propaganda. The second time they've made this charge that Jesus cast out demons by the power of Satan. Now these are the same guys, remember, who had just left trying to determine a way that they could destroy him. How can we kill Him? They watch Him do nothing but good. Nothing but offer healing and love. And they want to kill Him for it. Their hearts are incredibly hard. Stony, rock hard. And so even when they see Him cast a demon out and save a man's life, the response is, this guy casts out demons by Satan. The crowd's crying out, but could it not be that He is the son of David? Now in this point, gang, we reach the crisis of of Matthew's Gospel. This is the apex of of crisis. Now we will get to the cross, which is the apex of Jesus' reason for coming, but this is the crisis point where we begin to cross into new territory, where Israel begins to lose the opportunity that Jesus first gave to them in the first commission, that they would have first opportunity to recognize Him as their Messiah. This is where it happens right here. 
Remember, the purpose of Matthew's Gospel is to present Jesus as King. But since the Pharisees couldn't deny Jesus' power, they had to ascribe His power to something other than God, and they chose Satan. They saw Him work in the miracles. So the only way they could answer it, they couldn't say He can't work miracles because they saw it. So instead they said, Oh yeah, He casts out demons by Satan's power. Jesus responds by raising three questions. Verse 25. Knowing their thoughts, He said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself, how then will his kingdom stand? First question is a question of sabotage. If I'm casting out demons by Satan, why in the world would I do that? Why would Satan want that? It doesn't make any sense. Why would he work against himself? Jesus is saying, in essence, if I were in league with Satan, why would he have me cast out demons, freeing this man out from under Satan's control? That doesn't make any sense at all. It's a question of sabotage. It would undermine Satan's grab for power if Jesus were working in league with Satan to cast out demons. So he says, that doesn't make sense. Second question, verse 27, he says, If I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. What's he saying? Well, the second question is a question of the sons. A question of their sons. Apparently, there were contemporary Jewish leaders, Jewish sons, Jewish men who were exorcists and who were attempting to go around and casting out demons. And they were endorsed by the Pharisees and Jesus brings this to light. He says, what's any different from those guys? You say it's okay there, but then when I do the same thing, you call me out on it. It's a question of sabotage, a question of the sons. By the way, you ever wonder why there were so many demons present during Jesus' ministry? I mean, really, you read the the New Testament accounts here, the four Gospels, and it's demon, 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 demon. They are all over the country of Israel. They are everywhere. Why? I'll tell you in just a few minutes. I'm not going to make you wait till Sunday. But hold on to that question, because we will come back to it toward the end of the study tonight. Verse 28. Verse 28, in the third question here, verse 28, he says, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? Now what's Jesus saying here? Jesus is calling Satan the strong man. And he's saying no one can go head to head with Satan and win unless he is stronger still. You can't go into the house and take the strong man's property without binding him up first. Well, Jesus had done that. He had already faced Satan. He met him in the wilderness. And he defeated him. He will meet him again in Gethsemane. And in humility and acceptance of the Father's will, he will defeat him. He will meet him again on the cross. And in his death, he will defeat him. And we're going to see the grand conclusion of that defeat when Jesus comes again, and it'll be spectacular. Jesus had the power over the strong man. Gang, a question of sabotage, a question of their sons, and then finally Jesus offers a question of superiority. Who's greater here? Me or Satan? Who is greater? This is the faith-rattling question to the rebellious heart. If Jesus is who He claims to be. Is He? I, I share with you all, when you get into conversations with people about your Christian faith, Stay on Jesus. 
You don't go off on side tangents. Well, in fact, one of the things brought up the other night in our conversation with David, he said, you know, a friend of mine who happens to know and, and have studied Aramaic tells me that most of the Bible is, is incorrect versus what it was when it was originally written in Aramaic. And I'm thinking, okay, mostly it was written in Hebrew and Greek. A little Aramaic. But it was a side. It was a tangent. Well, let's talk about the language. No, I'll tell you what. Let's talk about Jesus. Because whatever you think the Bible says, the question is, is He who He claimed to be? And Jesus claimed to be God. Is He? If He is, you better rethink how you're approaching Him. If He's not, you better be able to say why He's not. It is all back to Him and His person. Forget about religion or winning teams or siding up. What are you going to do with Jesus? That's always the right question, and it's a question of His superiority. I just want to read this to you. Hebrews chapter 1. And Hebrews is just a kicking book. He starts right off saying, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world our Creator. And He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as He inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are My Son? Today I have begotten you. Or, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. Now listen, by God's standard, to worship anyone other than God himself was absolute blasphemy. And yet, God called for the angels to worship Jesus. And that would not be blasphemy. And of the angels, verse 7, he says... Who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire? But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Which is mind-boggling because God the Father is calling Jesus the Son, God. He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of His kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Does that freak anybody else out? God the Father calls God the Son, God, and then says about God the Son that God the Father is His God too. Well, what does that mean, Rick? I don't know. It means we're dealing with God here. Whether we're talking about God the Father, or Jesus the Son, or God the Spirit, we're talking about one and the same God. And in verse 10, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. He's talking to Jesus. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will become old like a garment, and like a mantle. You will roll them up like a garment. They will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. And to which of the angels did he ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who are inherit the salvation, their salvation? Now, we don't have time for this tonight, but the book of Hebrews starts out saying Jesus, Jesus is superior to the angels. The Hebrew writer will go on to show how Jesus is superior to man, will go on to show how Jesus is superior to the entire priesthood, to the Old Testament law, to everything Israel. Jesus is the superior one. And that's exactly what we see being proclaimed here as Jesus says, how can anyone enter the strong man's house 
and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man. Then he will plunder his house. I am, Jesus would say, superior in all ways. And you're comparing me and my work to the work of Satan. Verse 30, Jesus says, He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. No doubt he's referring back to them wandering through the grain field and gathering up something to eat. You either gather with me or you, you scatter. It must come back, gang, to the question of Jesus' superiority. Verse 31, he says, Therefore I say to you, and this is important, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks a word against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven to him, either in this age or in the age to come. Dun, dun, dun. It's the unforgivable sin. One of the most misunderstood passages in all of Scripture, and people will apply this to themselves because they took God's name in vain. Or because they fell away from church for a season, and when they came back, they're like, I don't know, I... I really rebelled against God. I remember when I walked out the door, I was saying, I'll have none of this. I don't need this. How can I now come back? I blasphemed the Holy Spirit. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. This idea of an unforgivable sin has been troubling to many people, but if we understand what Jesus is saying, it shouldn't be. Consider the context. He's just released a demon-possessed man, and the Pharisees ascribe that power to Satan. They have watched him heal the man's withered hand and they determined to go out and murder him. There's got to be a way we can do away with this Jesus. And so Jesus gets deadly serious with these men and he says, you are taking a dangerous step off the cliff of rebellion. You're going to a place, possibly they had already gotten there, a place that we could call, gang, the point of no repentance. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and please understand this, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the point of no repentance. If you have repented, no matter what you've done, if you have repented of that sin, guess what? You are not guilty of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Because you cannot repent if you have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. There's no coming back. You've gone so far out from God that repentance is not possible. See, that's the whole point. It's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit's primary role is to point people to Jesus and the Pharisees are at the point where they're saying He is Satan. Their hearts are so hard they can't even see Him. They will have nothing to do with Him. They want Him dead and gone. Jesus said in John 15:26, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of Truth who proceeds out from the Father, He will testify about Me. The Spirit is going to speak to you. And by the way, for those of you who remember when you gave your life to Jesus, maybe you were sitting in church for the first time, or maybe you were walking with a friend just talking about this whole Christianity thing, and all of a sudden, something changed in you. Suddenly you saw things differently and you went, I can believe this. This is true. I want some of this. You know why? Because the Holy Spirit just said, it's Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Listen to Him. The Spirit convicted you and revealed Jesus to you. This is how the Bible says the Spirit works. It's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, gang, when a person's heart is so hard, the ears become deaf to the prompting of the Spirit. And if you, can't have, if you can't hear the Spirit, 
You can't repent. If you can't hear the Spirit, you won't get life. And there is a point where the Lord says, My Spirit will no longer speak to you. When your heart gets so hard that you don't want My Spirit to speak to you, you will not be able to hear My Spirit speaking because I will stop. He said in Genesis 6.3, My Spirit shall not strive with man forever. I'm not just going to sit up there and wait and wait and wait and wait and wait and eventually hope that maybe you'll come around. There is a point where Jesus, where the Lord stops striving with man's spirit. There's an interesting place in Jeremiah, by the way. Jeremiah the prophet who was sent to Israel, sent to Judah to try to get them to turn around so that they wouldn't go into captivity in Babylon. And the people would not listen and they would not listen. And finally, in Jeremiah 7.16, listen to what God tells Jeremiah. As for you, do not pray for this people. Do not lift up cry or prayer for them. And do not intercede with me, for I do not hear you, Jeremiah. What? God got to a point with Judah, with the people of Judah. He said, Jeremiah, you are no longer allowed to pray for them. You can preach to them. And the whole rest of the book of Jeremiah, he is preaching and preaching and preaching. God's forgiveness, His grace, opportunity to be saved, His plan for their future and their hope. He's preaching all that, but at this point on, God says, you are not allowed to pray for them anymore because my ears now are closed. Why? Because the heart was so hard that all the speaking of God in the world would not get in. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit happens when a heart is so hard, a person will actually attribute the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan, which is exactly what the Pharisees had just done. He's casting out demons by the power of Satan. No, it was by the power of Spirit. But they couldn't see the Spirit because they couldn't hear the Spirit. And they couldn't hear the Spirit because they had reached the point of no return. The point of no repentance. These guys, it was bad. I don't know if we realize, really, they weren't just a bunch of religious guys who were a little confused. They were absolutely in 100% rebellion to God and His mercy. They didn't want it. They wanted their own power. In, in Mark's version of this same story, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, because they were saying, see, this is why he says this, because they were saying, Jesus has an unclean spirit. So hard were their hearts. They scrutinized His teaching. They questioned miracle after miracle. And even in the light of seeing a legitimate exorcism, they still attribute Jesus' power to Beelzebub. Paul describes it this way. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter days some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits, doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars, listen, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Paul says it's going to get so bad, people will be so rebellious that their conscience gets seared. If you can imagine what that means, it means the conscience doesn't work anymore. Les shared this a few weeks back when he was talking about prayer. You know where we hear where we hear the Spirit? We hear Him in our conscience. That is the point of contact. We hear the Spirit speaking to us in and through our conscience. Even before... Many of us became Christians when we were little kids. We knew it was wrong to steal the cookie out of the cookie jar because the Spirit was speaking to our conscience. It's not a good thing. C.S. Lewis said, you know, I didn't want to believe in God, 
But he said, I had this concept of right and wrong, and I had to ask, where does that come from? Where does the idea of having a conscience come from? It is the point of contact of God's Spirit. It's where He speaks to us and where we can hear Him. But when the conscience gets seared, because I'm so rebellious, and I, I, to, to the point that I'm hateful toward God, I can't hear the Spirit anymore. And when that happens, Jesus says, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit and there's no coming back. Here's the good news, brothers and sisters. No matter how bad your life has gotten, if you have come to a point of repentance, you're not blaspheming anybody. You are stepping back into relationship with Jesus Christ. He is waiting with arms wide open. Come on back. As long as we have the ability to repent, we are saved. What does Jesus mean at the end of this where He says it will not be forgiven Him either in this age or in the age to come? Jesus was talking about two ages, but maybe not what you think. In this age, Jesus was talking about the age in which He was standing. That is the tail end of the age of Israel. The age to come is not this age. It is not the age of the church. The age to come that Jesus is talking about here is the millennial kingdom. What makes you say that, Rick? Well couple of things. Uh, J. Vernon McGee says, in our day, this particular sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, check this out. McGee says, this particular sin cannot be committed in our age, not at least in the same way, because it can only be committed when Jesus is present on the earth, when He's here. That face-to-face absolute rebellion. And you know what's going to happen? This this blows my mind. It may blow a few of yours as well. At the end of the millennial kingdom, thousand years, the Bible tells us, of perfect peace, prosperity, and paradise on the earth, an Eden-like existence. thousand years, Jesus ruling and reigning out of Jerusalem. Everything good. You would think, you know, for those of you who question the recent presidential choice, Jesus, president of the world. How about that? That sounds great. And the Bible says at the end of a thousand years, Satan's going to be released. He'll be in prison during that time. He'll be released for a short time and he will lead a massive rebellion against Jesus. Which means that people alive at the tail end of the millennial kingdom, human beings walking the face of the earth, even under the governance and authority of Jesus, even seeing Jesus in person, even watching him do what he does, will still rebel against him just like the Pharisees did. Pharisees saw his love. They saw his compassion. They heard his teaching. They saw his miracles. And they said, no. We don't want this. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's a serious place to be, gang. And that's what he's talking about. This age or the millennial kingdom, that age to come. By the way, why would God allow such a wild thing? Those of you who went through the Revelation study, we talked about this. Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 9, described this inconceivable thing that, that Satan, who's been bound for a thousand years, suddenly is released and allowed to run rampant and to deceive people. Why? Because for every person, God always offers choice. Even at the end of that millennial reign, God is answering the question, well, if Jesus was here, I could believe in Him. Okay, we'll give you a thousand years. And you can watch Him do as He does, and you can be under His reign, and then at the end of that, we're going to give you a choice. Jesus or Satan. And let's see what happens. And the truth is, my friends, there's not going to be a single person in all eternity. When we go to live with God forever, there won't be a single person there who can say... I did pretty good. I got here on my own merit. Every person 
who lives in eternity with God will only say, praise the Father for His grace. It's the only reason I'm here. If you're struggling with sin tonight, I hope you heard me on that. Grace is the only reason any of us are here. And it's the only reason we're going to be saved. Well, where are we? I kind of go off sometimes. Verse 33. Verse 33. He continues to, to uh, rail a little bit on the Pharisees. He, he says, you know what? Make a choice. He says, either make a good, the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. <laughs> Why does he call them a brood of vipers? I think because they're just like children of Satan, the old serpent. They're children of the snake. You brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. And the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Jesus is he's hopping mad here. Maybe not hopping, but he's, he's mad. And he's looking at the Pharisees. We see him here, we hear him say it another time in John chapter 8, verse 44. He says, You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. He's the liar and the father of lies. And Jesus says, But because I speak the truth, you don't believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. And for this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. Did you catch that? Jesus will say it another time. For this reason you don't hear Him. Why don't they hear Him? Because their hearts are hard. Their consciences are seared. And they have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. They are beyond the point of repentance. So Jesus doesn't pull any punches with these guys. He calls it as it is. But by the way, if if you're concerned that your words might condemn you, because He says... Yeah, they will. You'll either be justified by your words or by your words you will be condemned. You have two choices, gang. You can try and explain how good you are to God. You can use your words to say, well, okay, but I did these. Here's my list, Lord. Let me, let, me tell, let me just talk you through this. Or you can speak one word, Jesus. That's the only word I need. Stand before the Lord in judgment and He says, well, Rick, what do you think? And I'll just say, Jesus and my Lord Jesus stands up for me and goes it's okay Father he's with me it's the only word I need to know Romans 10 verse 9 says if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved for with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation now what's amazing is some of the Pharisees still don't get how far they've gone They still don't realize how offensive they have been. Verse 38, it says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. You want to see a what? Let me just ask a question. Which sign did you miss? Was it the deaf hearing again? Was it the blind guys who were seeing? Was it the guy's shriveled hand? Did you not catch that? Were you looking? Did you sneeze maybe right at the moment that I healed his hand and you missed it? Was it the demon cast out? Which of the, was it the dead girl raised back to life? Which sign did you not see? And they have the audacity at this point to say, okay, well, look, okay, all right, show us a sign and we'll believe in you. 
unbelievable. Which is why at this point, Jesus says in verse 39, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The sign of Jonah, gang, is the resurrection. Jesus compares his coming resurrection, hadn't happened yet, but he compares that, his death and resurrection, to the prophet Jonah being swallowed by the big fish and then spit out back to life onto the shore. It wasn't the only the sign of, of his power. It is the only sign which authenticates Jesus' message for all time. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 15 16. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ for this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Our entire faith rests on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says if he's not raised, your faith is in vain. You are a pitiable people. Of course, we know right before this, Paul said, but he has been raised, and over 500 of the brethren at one time saw him, and you can go ask any of them, for when Paul wrote this, most of them were still alive. We have seen him raised and alive. And he says this is the last and only sign. Sadly, the Pharisees are going to look at the resurrection and reject it as well. They're not even going to believe that. Now, I want to make one note about this interesting comment Jesus makes about Jonah. There are Christians who backpedal on the story of Jonah the prophet. There are believing people who say, Boy, that one, that's a tough one. Come on. Guy jumps overboard and a fish swallows him. Yeah. It was just an allegorical story that was just kind of told, you know, to make a point. These same people have no problem believing the Red Sea parted, but they can't believe a fish ate a man and spit him back out. You know, it's incredible to me. Don't backpedal on the truth of Scripture. Because here Jesus authenticates not only the prophet Jonah as a real person, but he authenticates what happened to Jonah as having actually happened. In other words, if you have trouble believing in Jonah the prophet and the the story of the big fish, Jesus didn't have any problem at all. So believe Jesus, and Jonah is not difficult to believe. Verse 41. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South, verse 42, will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And that something greater than is, of course, Jesus. Now, we can go back and we can answer the question I asked a while ago. Why were there so many demons present in Israel in Jesus' day? Watch this. Jesus says, Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came and when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself and they go in and live there and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. And that's the key to understanding this parable of Jesus. What parable? The one that Jesus just told us. 
where he describes exactly what was going on and what will go on in Israel. Please don't miss this. These are not three verses on demonology. Oh, it's true. And it's legitimate what Jesus is saying, that if an evil spirit is in somebody and then gets cast out, and that person cleans up their life, the spirit is going to try and re-enter with more power. Jesus is saying, yeah, that, that can happen, but he's making a broader connection here. He is talking literally about what is going to happen to Israel. How do you know that, Rick? Because he says so. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Understand this. You Bible students, you know the story. What happened in 586 B.C.? This is quiz time, so I'll let you answer. What happens... What happened in 586 B.C.? Take a risk and throw it out there. What do you think happened? Jews were taken to Babylon. Jerusalem was destroyed. And no, the flood was way before that. (laughs) Jews were taken into Babylon. Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was sacked in 586 B.C. Why? Same reason that Israel, the northern kingdom, was taken into captivity by the Assyrians in 722. Both the northern and southern kingdoms were soaked in idolatry. It was the problem of the people. Not that they rejected God, but they believed in God and in idols. And idol worship was rampant throughout Israel. The last good king, and we just studied this recently. In 2 Kings, the last good king was Josiah, who rid the land of all the idol worship. But guess what? His son brought it all right back in with a flood. And the land was covered with idolatry. And so the Lord said, all right, that's it. Everybody out of the pool. (laughs) They get sent to captivity in Babylon where they would be for 70 years. Now check this out, gang. When they come back, when they come back, idol worship does not resume in Israel. The house is clean and swept. The idols are gone. And idols, by the way, are demons. It's one and the same thing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.20, the things to which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake at the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And by the way, if you have friends who are into the New Age, or who are into worshiping amulets or looking at little statues and, and ascribing some kind of power there, guess what? Those are demons. But all the idolatry, all the demonic presence that was in Israel went out when they went to Babylon. The land was cleansed for 70 years. It had Sabbath rest, literally, for 70 years. But when the people came back, though the house had remained clean, the problem is this. They were free from idolatry, but their faith was empty. They didn't replace the emptiness with a deep, abiding faith and trust in God. They just remained empty. They had reformation, but they didn't have regeneration. And that's another historical problem in the church, the the Reformation. You know why the Reformation failed? What do you mean the Reformation failed? There are denominations all over the world today, Rick. Yeah, and they're all failing. You know why the Reformation failed? Because it was Reformation without regeneration. It was cleaning out the house without filling the house with the one thing the house needed more than anything else, and that was the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God to fill up. When Jesus came, the nation would not receive Him as King. When Jesus came on the scene, demonic presence in Israel started to rise. Why? Because Satan knew what the threat was. There was a danger. What what happened? He was born a baby? 
Quick, kill all the male children. That didn't work. He grew up. Where is he now? He was at the temple at age 12. Quick, get him away from his parents. That didn't work. Suddenly he's on the scene as Messiah and he's healing and, and Satan is going nuts. Let him loose. We need demonic power. So we see power all over the land. We see demon possession constantly and Jesus is casting it out right and left. Satan is trying to, trying to overtake the land again and gang, it's going to get worse. Because ultimately Israel is going to accept Antichrist as their Messiah. What did Jesus say? He said it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself and they go in there and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. Get this, in the tribulation the state of Israel is going to be worse than it was under the worst of the kings in all their idolatry. Until finally the people of Israel get it. Finally they see Antichrist for who he is, Satan incarnate. And at that point, then there will be a turn to Jesus, finally. But this parable that Jesus gives, it is demonology, but more than that, it is a picture of what's coming, what's happening to Israel. And I belay this point for this reason, gang. For you and for me, it is never just enough to sweep the house and clean out the sin. We've got to be filled. We have got to be filled. I have had more conversations over the last couple weeks about this very thing. I got sin in my life, and I just came from a conversation like this. That's why I was late tonight. I have all the sin in my life. I just want to make it stop. That's great. But you can't just say no to sin. Nancy Reagan was wrong. You can't just say no. You have to say yes to the Spirit. You can clean out the sin. You can stop the drinking. You can stop the drugs. You can stop the sex. You can stop all the things that you're doing that was so harmful. Say no to that stuff. I'm not going to do it anymore. Sweep out the house. Clean myself up. And guess what? It's going to be harder. It's going to come back with a vengeance. Because the house is empty. That's why I think there's so much more power in this verse than we realize. Ephesians 5.18 Don't get drunk with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. It's only by being filled with the Holy Spirit that now I have the power in my cleaned out life, in my reformed life. Now I've got regeneration. Now I've got revival. And now that, that attack, that demonic said, they can't, can't get me. Because I'm so full of the Spirit that the demons will flee. You've got to be filled Romans 8, verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you're not in the flesh. Brothers and sisters, listen. You're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. And gang, reformation is not what we need. We need regeneration. We need revival. We need hearts that are enlivened by the Holy Spirit of God. Now the chapter ends in verse 46. While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. And someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother... And my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. You might want to point, some of you with Catholic friends, point them to that verse. He had opportunity right here to exalt Mary if she was to be exalted. He didn't. 
But Jesus does something more than just kind of throw a slap at his family. His family shows up. He's in the middle of teaching. He's talking to people, and someone says, "Hey, Lord, your folks are here, and you know, or your your mom and your brothers. Where's Joseph? By the way, Joseph probably is dead at this point. He probably died earlier on in Jesus' life, sometime after Jesus was age twelve. That's the last time we see Joseph." So his mom and his brothers are here. And what's interesting, Mark 3.21 tells us that when his family heard of this, or when his own people heard of him, they went to take custody of him, for they were saying he's lost his senses. He's nuts. We happen to know from John 7.5, not even his brothers believed in him. They didn't believe in him until after the resurrection. Guys like James and Jude, who wrote letters that are in our New Testaments, they didn't buy Jesus, their own brother, until later on. So his family shows up, and we can only assume that they showed up because they're thinking, he's got this Messiah complex. <laughs> Which he was allowed to have, you know, being, being Messiah. But so Jesus, he, he, you could just read this and go, oh, that's a nice one, Jesus. Well, you really gave your, your mom and your brothers the what for? Well, who are my mother and my brothers? They're right here. You guys are. Zinger! You know, he nailed them. And that's not why Jesus said what He said. Now some of you might say, okay, well if I read that, I get it. He's talking about the spiritual family. And in, in a sense, He is. You know, as Paul says in Galatians 6.10, while we have opportunity, let's do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And so in a way, Jesus was just saying, we share this common bond. You're my family. In the same way that I look at you as family, you look at me as family. And, and sometimes... By the way, have you noticed in the church sometimes your relationship with a brother and sister in Christ is deeper than relationship with a non-believing brother or sister of the flesh? It's because the Spirit is thicker than blood. But Jesus is saying something here. And again, in the context of this chapter, something stunning. As I said before, this chapter represents a shift in Jesus' ministry. The shift is from the family of Israel to the family of the world. It is at this point, I believe, where the opportunity for Israel's salvation, at least at that time, had to be put on hold. Because the very leaders of the nation blasphemed the Holy Spirit. The leaders of the nation said, we just don't buy it. We don't believe you. And so Jesus, gang doesn't mean he's casting off Israel, but as the nation rejected him, he set aside the nation for now to begin offering the gospel to the world. Look at verse 50 again. Whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. This point is, I believe, the renunciation of all ties to the flesh in favor of only ties to the Spirit. And in this statement, Jesus' break with Israel is very nearly complete. My mother and my brothers are out there. The line of Judah. But as of right now, I'm, I'm setting that aside. And I'm setting it aside for my brothers and sisters and mothers in the world to bring salvation to them. This is a very poignant and serious moment in Jesus' life. I'm no longer tied to the bloodline of mothers and brothers My family is far greater. It includes whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave-free. It doesn't matter. All are one in Christ Jesus, Paul would say. 
As we finish this chapter, last night Corey called across the, the kitchen to me. He said, Dad, who's your favorite Bible character? I love that question. Without hesitation, I responded, Jesus! <laughs> and Cheryl said, well, obviously, Jesus. That's not what your son is asking. Of course, Jesus. I mean, all, he's all of our favorite character. Who do you mean besides them? Besides him? Who's your favorite character? And I said, what do you mean besides him? The whole book's about him. It's not about Daniel. It's not about David. It's not about Solomon. It's not about the Queen of Sheba. It's not about Mary. Who's my favorite Bible character? It has to be Jesus. Because it is His book. It's His story. That's like saying, well, I read Ben-Hur the other day and my favorite character was Masala. (laughs) The book's about Ben-Hur. I read Charlotte's Web, but you know it's that Templeton that I really like. The book's about Charlotte. Come on. The book is about Jesus. Now, you've heard me say that before, but three times in our study tonight, three times, Jesus makes this statement. He says, something greater is here. In verse 6, something greater than the temple. In verse 41, something greater than Jonah. In verse 42, something greater than Solomon. Now, listen to what he just said. Greater than the temple, greater than Jonah, greater than Solomon. Yeah, Jesus is saying, greater than the temple, I am greater than the law. I'm greater than the law. Greater than Jonah, I'm greater than the prophets. Greater than Solomon, I'm greater than the kings. The temple, that is the law, the prophets, and the kings, all that was great in Israel, and Jesus says, I'm greater than. I am greater than. Because Jesus was and is in all ways greater than. Amen? Let's pray to Him now. Jesus, this is why with joy we approach You tonight, even as we prayed for Jackie earlier. We pray with expectant hope and faith. And Father, not fear as to what might happen with this tumor. We, we pray with joy as to how You are going to be glorified in Jackie's life, in Tom's life. Father, there are a lot of things going on for a lot of people here right now. Things going on for our fellowship itself. We are praying in excitement to see what You're about to do. Because You are greater than all other things. Father, if there's any one phrase, I pray that You would stick in our hearts and our minds tonight as we leave this place. It is the the phrase, greater than. Jesus, You are the greater than. And may we apply this phrase in every aspect of our life. If, if, If we have students who have a test tomorrow, Jesus, You're greater than my test. If we have someone struggling at work, Jesus, You're greater than my boss. And I know some would say amen to that. You are greater than my troubles. You're greater than my fear. You are greater than my sickness. You are greater than my sin. You are greater than my struggles. Jesus, you are greater than. And so again, we joyfully proclaim your greatness, your authority, and your splendor over our lives. And we thank you, Jesus, that it truly is all about you. And so in your name we pray. Amen.